You're listening to a podcast of the Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Church in the city of Cork on the beautiful south coast of Ireland. We hope and pray that it will be a blessing to you. Lads, I want to talk to you today about no ordinary Sunday. See, we think today is no ordinary Sunday because it's the high point in the Christian calendar. Many people think Christmas is the high point, but it's not really. Easter Sunday is the high point in the Christian calendar. It was also the high point in the Jewish calendar. It was no ordinary Sunday, this particular Sunday that we're going to look at this morning. It was no ordinary Sunday for so many different reasons. It was no ordinary Sunday for the Jews because it was the high point, as I said, of their festival year. It was the high point of things in Jerusalem. It was the high point of the city of Jerusalem. It was no ordinary Sunday for the city itself. The historian Flavius Josephus said that the population of Jerusalem would grow by 10 times at the time of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. People would come from all over the countryside, in fact, all over the then known world to celebrate the Passover. 10 times the population, as much perhaps as uh, 2 million people, according to Flavius Josephus, would come. It was no ordinary Sunday for the city. This Sunday was no ordinary Sunday for Pontius Pilate or for the Roman authorities. They had just staved off the possibility of a major riot. They had also executed a rebel leader. They had just about managed to maintain peace in this troublesome province and in this troublesome city. They also still had to deal with this huge influx of the Jewish populace into the city. They were on high alert. It was no ordinary Sunday for them. It was no ordinary Sunday for the high priests and for the priesthood in Jerusalem. Remember, they were at the height at this time of the year of their pomp and of their ceremony. They were at the height of their popularity. They were the uncrowned kings of the Jewish religion at the time. But it was no ordinary Sunday for them because they had managed to get rid of a significant rival who was teaching against them. They had been part of the people, part of the crowd who had condemned Jesus illegally to death in the middle of the night. They were glad to see the back of Jesus of Nazareth. They were glad to see the back of this potential challenge to their spiritual authority and to their power. It was no ordinary Sunday for the disciples. The disciples at this stage clearly broken-hearted, deeply disappointed, deeply disillusioned by the events that had come. Only a week earlier, they had walked into the city of Jerusalem in all of their glory, announcing Hosanna to the King of David. They were the next coming government. They thought the kingdom of God was literally at hand. They thought that the powers of Rome and the powers of religious authority were about to be overthrown. Their hopes on Good Friday were dashed by the death of Jesus Christ. They were still loyal. They still loved their saviour. They still loved their master and their teacher. But their hopes were dashed. If you had been alive on that particular Sunday morning, called in the Bible the first day of the week, we call it Sunday, they call it the first day of the week. If you had been alive then, that was the context into which the events we're about to look at happened. These people had no idea of the time that they were living, the importance of the time that they were living. Rome had no idea what was about to happen. The high priest had no idea what was about to happen. Jerusalem with its swollen population had no idea what was about to happen. 
What was about to happen has often been described as the hinge of history. It is the very moment when history changes. Now, I read a quote that said the hinge of history was on the door of the stable in Bethlehem. But I don't believe that that's the case. Because the door on the stable in Bethlehem only comes into light when the hinge we're about to look at actually turns. The events that are about to, we're about to see change the history of mankind, change the history of the globe and of the world, politically and religiously and socially. The story we're about to look at is recorded in four different Gospels. All the Gospels contain the story. The birth is only contained in two, but four Gospels contain it. Matthew chapter 28, Mark chapter 16, Luke 24, and John 20. The one we're going to look at this morning is in Matthew chapter 28. But in these four statements, if you will, these are witness testimony, eyewitness testimony of the events that have happened. When we look at this story, we will see some circumstantial evidence. But here we're looking at what they call primary evidence, the evidence of witnesses who actually saw these events literally happen. They're either the eyewitness accounts, such as the, the account in Mark, which is considered to be Peter's account, Luke's account, Luke did a major exploration, drew from the previous sources of Matthew and Mark and also from witnesses himself. It's thought to be written from the perspective of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And of course, John was Jesus' beloved disciple, the one who Jesus was closest to during his walk here on earth. When we look at these stories, they all have many things in common and they have some things that are different. Now, this is important. Many people read the Gospels and go, ah, but they tell different bits of the story. Exactly. That is the whole point of their authenticity. If something happened in Grace Church today, and you asked Tom and I what had happened in the church, and Tom and I told exactly the same story, you'd have to think that we must have corroborated our story. But because of the differences in these stories, they're utterly authentic. They're utterly authentic. I want to look at Matthew's Gospel. We're on the hinge of history and the events about to unfold and you're very familiar with them. In actual fact, you may be so familiar with them that they're ordinary to you. But there's nothing ordinary about the story of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is nothing ordinary, no element of this story fits what you would consider to be ordinary, meaning not special or distinctive in any way. There is nothing in this story that is ordinary. I would love to go into every detail of it, but I can't, and I'd be here for six weeks talking about every detail. And I would love every minute of it, but you'd hate me, but I'm not, so I'm not going to do that. We're going to look at Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, and may God bless us as we read his word today. And remind us of the life that we have access to, the change that we have access to, the hope that we have today. May we be reminded of it as we read these words in Jesus' mighty name. Here we go. Amen. Early on Sunday morning, all four Gospels recorded that this happened early, first thing on Sunday morning. All four Gospels record that this was an unexpected event. It was an unusual event. Nobody was expecting it. No disciples were expecting it. Authorities, religious, nobody was expecting it. It was early on a Sunday morning. All four fully agreed on that. As the new day was dawning, Mary Magdalene and Mary uh, and the other Mary, who was Mary the mother of James, by the way, went out to visit the tomb. And then something extraordinary happens. It says this. Suddenly there was a great earthquake. And an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, rolled aside the stone, and sat on it. 
I love that little small detail. You see, we're so familiar with the idea there was an earthquake, but it wasn't an ordinary earthquake. It was a divine, spiritual, seismic event. And then down comes the angel. The angels are in, in, in each of the accounts. And then he says, he sat on it. He rolled back the stone. And he sat down on the stone. Oh, I just love it. I just love the ease with all which all this happens. There's no panic, there's no hurry, there's no rush, there's no nothing. He rolls back the stone and he sits on it. And then he says something fantastic. His face shone like lightning and his clothing was white as snow. The guards, who had been posted, we'll get to them in a second, shook with fear when they saw him and they fell into a dead faint. These big, hardened, tough Roman officers, these tough Roman soldiers who kill you as fast as look at you, saw this angel and fainted. They went down in a heap when they saw him. I probably would have fainted too, but I'm not going to say anything about that. The angel spoke to the women. What did he say? Hallelujah. Do, don't, I'm doing, I'm going to do it. Don't be afraid. Do not be afraid. Can I say it again? We're always saying it here in Grace. You hear me and Tom are like the old scratchy records, which means nothing to anybody who screams music, but the old records used to have scratches in them. Do not be afraid. There is nothing to be afraid of. God is for you, not against you. In the middle of this current climate with all the stuff that's going on, don't be afraid. The Lord is with you and he is for you. I know he said you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. Just as he said he would happen. Come see the place where he's lying. Three of the Gospels record this exact phrase. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. I love it. It says, why are you looking for the living amongst the dead? He's not here. He's after getting up. He's gone. He's gone. Come. And I love it. It says, come see where his body was lying. The angel was interested in. God was interested in them seeing the evidence of the absence of Jesus. But we'll get to that as well. And no, he said, go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. He is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Remember what I have told you. And the hint here is, go to Galilee. He's going ahead of you to Galilee. Remember what I have told you. It goes on. The women ran quickly from the tomb. And they were very frightened, but they were also filled with great joy. I think everybody has experienced that. Kind of bit of fear, bit of joy, didn't know quite what happened, a bit confused, a bit kind of, I don't know that was an angel, and there was an earthquake, and, and the stone rolled, and, and the, same, the soldiers were after fainting, and they were on the ground, and an angel appeared, and the tomb was empty, and ah, nothing ordinary about this story. We may become familiar with the story, but there's nothing ordinary about it. May God grant that this story is never an ordinary story to us. And as they went, Jesus met them and greeted them. They ran to him, grasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go home and tell my brothers to leave for Galilee, and they will see me there. This is the testimony, the eyewitness testimony of at least two women. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James were also told variously that Joanna was there. We're told that Salome was there. We're told, in actual fact, in one reference, that there were other women there, possibly coming from different places heading towards the tomb, and therefore all having a slightly different perspective and a different angle on the events that happened here. But this is first-hand testimony. Maybe they were seeing a vision, say some. 
It's first-hand testimony. They actually met him. Oh, maybe something else happened. Maybe Jesus had only fallen asleep on the cross. And maybe he wasn't dead. There are so many arguments made to try and undo this event. Why? Because this event is so important. It's so important. And one of the ways in which they attempted to defeat this event, or to attempted to defeat the witness testimony, or rebut the witness testimony of these people, is there was quick action taken. Read this. As the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and told the leading priests what had happened. I love this. A meeting with the elders was called, and they decided to give the soldiers a large bribe. Now, that makes it no ordinary Sunday for those soldiers as well. They faint, see an angel, and hey, what a great day! They get a big bribe into the bargain as well. They went and told the story, continues on. They told the soldiers, you must say that Jesus' disciples came during the night while we were sleeping and they stole his body. The stealing the body story was the first rebuttal to the death of Jesus Christ, to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this whole stole the body story. If the governor hears about it, we'll stand up for you so you won't get in trouble. It goes on to say, so the guards accepted the bride and said what they were told to say. Their story spread widely among the Jews and they still tell it today. This is an important story. And do you know why this is an important story? Because it stands for two important things. One, it accepts from the soldier's testimony that something had happened at the grave, that an angel had appeared and a stone had been rolled away. And two, it was that the elders accepted that the body of Jesus was gone. And so they had to invent the story that he would be stolen. Matter of fact, if you go back into Matthew's Gospel a little bit earlier, we see that the, the leaders asked Pilate to post the guard on the tomb, saying that this chancellor said that he was going to rise on the third day, and we think his men are going to steal his body. It was an important story to begin to fabricate and to begin to use. But the whole stole the body story doesn't stand up if you look at the lives of the apostles. So many of them were martyred for their faith, went through so much difficulty in their lives, went through sacrifice and gave up their homes and gave up their little lives. Why? Because they stole something of the body? There was nothing in it for them. They had nothing to gain by that. If it was in a court of law, there's no way this excuse would stand because they didn't have any motive in stealing the body of Jesus Christ. And why was it important to get rid of this story? Because everything, brothers and sisters, everything hangs on this account. Everything. People talk about the birth of Jesus at Christmas, which is really important. But the resurrection of Jesus is basically the foundation stone of the Christian faith. Because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, nothing matters. In actual fact, if this story isn't true, everything we understand about the identity of Jesus, about the identity of ourselves, about the nature of the universe itself, is totally undermined if this story isn't true. This story is true. It is a true story, and it has stood the test of time. It stood the test of um, forensic examination time and time again. I like what C.S. Lewis said, that I like a lot of the things he said, when he talked about this particular incident in his book, God in the Dark. He said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. It doesn't matter. It's just another philosophy. If it's false, it doesn't matter. But if it is true, it is of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is to be moderately important. 
It can't be kind of important. It can't be sort of important. It is either very, very, very important because it's true or not important at all because it's false. Because everything literally hangs on that story. And the people who told the story have vivid recollections of what happened on that day and in that event because the events were so unexpected, so extraordinary and so dramatic. It's a bit like this. I remember my father when we were growing up telling us that he remembers where he was when he heard that John F. Kennedy had been assassinated, assassinated in Dallas in 1963. He remembers exactly where he was when he heard that on the radio. For us, maybe for our generation, we can remember exactly where we were on the day that we heard the news about 9-11, the Twin Tower attacks in New York City on September 11, 2001. Now you can ask me about any September 11th between then and now, and I haven't got a clue what I did. But I knew what I did on September the 11th, 2001. In actual fact, I'll tell you exactly what I did. I had been in Tom's house on September the 11th, 2001. Sometimes during my lunch break at work, I would call to Tom's house in Carrigaline. And we had just had lunch and I left to his place to go back to work, got into the van I was driving, turned on the radio, and Joe Duffy, uh, as in live going, Joe Duffy, how's it going, Joe? Joe Duffy was talking about the events that were breaking out are happening in New York. I remember that day very, very vividly. It's the same for these disciples. When they remember the story, it is super vivid in their minds. The events were so unexpected, so extraordinary, that this testimony must and has all of the ring of real veracity about it. It all hangs on it. Our identity, Jesus' identity, the truth of Christianity, the truth of our eternal destiny. You see, the thing about the, the, thing about the, the manger, for instance, if you take a, a Jesus lying in the manger or a Jesus lying in a tomb, there's no threat. There's no threat to you if Jesus was just a little baby in the manger or if he's dead and lying in a tomb, he's no threat to you. Be the hopey. If he is risen, if he is resurrected from the dead, boy, does that change everything. It changes everything. Not only was that the extraordinary experience, but it says earlier on in Matthew's Gospel, actually in the chapter before this in Matthew 27, that at the earthquake that happened when Jesus died, it said, the tombs of many righteous people were open, and they appeared to their family members after the resurrection of Jesus. So here's another extraordinary event that happened on this ordinary Sunday. But I want to take it a little bit further forward, I want to go to the chapter that Tom read from, a little bit earlier, from Romans, or from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15. Paul talks about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and he says something very challenging. He actually raises a question, I'm calling it the big if. And the big if is something that we must take on board, and must, we must challenge ourselves and say, well, what about this big if? Here's what Paul says. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless, and you're still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. If Christ has not been raised. He goes on to say this. He says that if our hope is in Christ only for this life, we are to be more pitied than anyone in the world. If we only hope in him for this life, if the only hope we have is what we hope in for now, should we want us to be hoping in Lady Gaga? Hoping in take your pick of actor, hoping in Joe Biden, hoping in Michal Martin. Let's say hoping or hoping in him. Anyway, if that's if that is all, if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, that's as good as our hope is. But hallelujah. And Paul is saying, what, what Paul is saying here is that we do have hope for this life. 
Jesus is alive and he is at work in us in this life. But not only for this life only. And that's part of the good news. It's not just for this life and not just for the outworking of this life. It's for what comes afterwards as well. The next fact he goes on to say, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. There is a great harvest of all who have died. And he is saying that this man who was the, the firstborn from the dead, the first to defeat death, is the first fruit of a great harvest. He so many firsts. This Jesus. He is the first of all of all who have died. And you and I are part of that harvest. You and I, I love what he goes on to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 26. He goes on to say, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. The last enemy to be destroyed is death itself. And we can read right out to the end of Revelation. We can see that happening. It's a fantastic, it's fantastic read Revelation all about that. But I love he says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So there's one more enemy. We can defeat so many enemies in our lives. We can defeat so many stuff in our lives. With the power of God in us, we can defeat so many things. But there's one last enemy that needs to be destroyed. There's been a lot of talk recently about vaccines. A lot of people are talking about vaccines. Some people think vaccines are the hope of the world. They appear to be the way out of the coronavirus restrictions. They seem to be something that so many people around the world are holding on for. It is the thing that will probably save many, many lives. That's the reality. And vaccines historically, whether it was for smallpox or polio or TB or measles and mumps and rubella, whatever you're having yourself, have saved millions of lives. But the one vaccine you can't get is the anti-death vaccine. And that is what Jesus is actually delivering. The anti-death vaccine is delivered in Jesus Christ. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, death is being defeated. And what happens, according to Paul, that though we may physically die, we, are, we will still live. Jesus himself said it. In John's Gospel, chapter 11, 25, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Hallelujah. He who, who you believes in me, will, though he is dead, he will still live. And he who lives and believes in me will never die. Did that mean that everybody who was alive back and then should still be alive? Not at all. Because death is still a living thing and it happens to us because we're humans and we live in a sinful world. And that's why death is here. But Jesus has delivered the death-defeating vaccine which will affect our bodies as well as our souls. Here's what Paul describes. He says, for our dying bodies must be transformed like Jesus' body into bodies that will never die. And our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. That's what the future is. This arm broken carcass is going to fall away and we will be transformed. Paul says it, he says it more in, in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, we'll be transformed in the twinkling of an eye. We will be transformed in all the death and the decay in creation and in our lives and in our bodies will actually pass away. Our mortal bodies will be transformed into immortal bodies. And then he says something really important. Then, he says, when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is 
your sting. And here Paul is quoting Isaiah and Hosea. He says, death is swallowed up in victory. Death itself is defeated. Jesus, when he appears, uh, when he appears in Revelation, chapter 1, he says, I was dead and alive, and I hold in my hands the keys of hell and of death, or the grave and of death. But I like this, and something that people don't often pay attention to. He says, then, then the scripture will be fulfilled. You see, right now, we still feel the sting of death. Right now, people we know and we love and we ourselves feel the sting of death because it's part of being a human being. We, people see it perhaps most in, in, um, in, in relief, as it were, when you see it in the things like COVID numbers or war, war death numbers. You see it so obvious and so clear. And there still is a sting. When somebody, even when a Christian dies, his family, her family still weep and they still mourn. But Paul said to the Thessalonians, we do not mourn like those who have no hope. We mourn like those who have hope. And that hope is because Jesus rose again. Because in his resurrection, he delivered the anti-death vaccine. It means that we also will rise again. He was the first fruits of the great harvest from the dead. And we also will rise from the dead. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let me just say this. I'm going to finish. I've got one last verse. And it's a strange verse that he comes to at the very end of this passage of scripture. It's a very, very strange verse that Paul comes to at the very end of this chapter. The chapter is all about the resurrection. And you might say, do you know something? Like, thanks for sharing that now, Michael, about the resurrection. But what about my problems now? I mean, I've got issues in my marriage. I've got issues at work. I've got issues with my mental health and with my physical health. Like, thanks for sharing the message about the resurrection, Michael. But, like, what does that do for me today? Aha! It does everything for you today because it is because of that resurrection that we have that hope we quoted it earlier romans chapter 8 verses 11 when paul says if the same spirit that raised christ from the dead dwells in you he will give life to your mortal body by that same spirit living in you that's why it makes a difference to your life today because all of our hopes all of the truth we believe in all of the lives we live the prayers we pray hang on the reality of the resurrection. It's all hanging on that resurrection. And Paul brings it back into everyday life, just brings it back into everyday life in such a simple way. I mean, he's talking heavenly language, incredible astronomical, as it were, events, cosmic events. And then he brings it back to reality and he says this. He says, So, my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord. For you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. Be strong and immovable because of the resurrection. Nothing you do for the Lord is useless. Because he is risen from the grave. Because he is who he said he is. Because this message is of infinite importance. You can be strong and immovable. And always work knowing that nothing you ever do for the Lord is ever useless. When Paul talks about this life, Paul lived no ordinary life. Paul lived an incredibly interesting and exotic life. And the life that we're called to live is no ordinary life caused and begun by this ordinary Sunday. Just by this day that was so unusual and so outstanding, literally in cosmic history, we are called to live a different life. 
because of these events, this Sunday is no ordinary Sunday. Because of these events, we have hope as we go into this Sunday. We look back to the events and we see how the, those events have worked their way, have worked their way, how the dominoes have fallen right throughout history up to this present day. It was no ordinary Sunday. And as a result, we are no ordinary people. We're not just like the GAA. We're not like the members of some club somewhere. We are no ordinary people. Paul says we are a peculiar people. We're an unusual people called out of darkness into light. Tom referenced it at the start. He has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are no ordinary people. Praise God, we have no ordinary future. Because the ordinary future and cycle for mankind is death and decay. But we do not have that future ahead of us. Hallelujah. Because we believe in the one who is the resurrection and the life. It is no ordinary life that we are living. And it is no ordinary life that we are called to. And whatever it is that we face, we face with hope and with confidence and with faith. In the power of him who rose from the grave. And because of that, you can have hope when you face your situations. You can have hope when you face your troubles. You can have hope when you face your difficulties. You can have hope when you delight in your joys. You can have hope regardless of what is in front of you. And praise God, regardless of what is behind you, whatever your past is like, you can leave the past behind, embrace Jesus Christ, and move forward into a glorious resurrection driven future. I want to pray as we close this morning. I want to pray that we will take this on board. Can I just encourage you? If you're interested, you should investigate the claims of the resurrection. Why not look it up? Why not check it out? Look at the claims. There's been so many books written on the whole thing. If you look up a guy like um, J. Warner Wallace, who's written the book called Cold Case Christianity. Or you look up, I think it's John Ackberg's book, The Case for Christ. These guys take a forensic analysis and a forensic view, and there are dozens and dozens of books on the subject. Check it out. Build up your faith. Worship the Lord your God with all of your mind if you want to know more. But I want to encourage you. We are no, we are no ordinary people. It is no ordinary future ahead of us. And then before that future comes, we now live no ordinary life. Will you pray with me? I'm going to pray very briefly. Lord Jesus Christ, I thank you that on the third day you rose from the grave. I thank you, Lord, that there is evidence to show and to prove that you rose from the grave. There is eyewitness testimony to show, to prove that you rose from the grave. And I thank you, Lord, there is history to show and to prove that you have risen from the grave. Because of what you have done for us, because of what has happened in you and for you and through you, we also can have life as we trust in the one who is called the resurrection and the life. Lord, I pray this week as we look at our situations and our circumstances, as we look at maybe the problems before us or the history behind us, Lord, I pray we would change our perspective to realize who you are, that you truly are God. That you truly are risen from the grave. That you truly are watching over the minutiae of our lives. Watching us. Going before us. Protecting us. Providing for us. And watching over us by your presence. May we be blessed as we come into this week, Lord. And see all of our lives, Lord. All of our ordinary lives. In their true perspective. Serving the extraordinary Jesus. In our everyday, we pray. In Jesus' mighty name. God's people say, Amen. Amen.